Uh, today we're going to be hearing from Ryan McDonald. He's a pastor at Southlands Church in Brea, California. And he's also the regional director for Foster the City, which is our newest of three community care partners that we have as Foster the City. That's right. Some of you know. And so um, I'm going to invite Ryan up here really quick before we actually get into the teaching, just to give a quick update on Foster the City, maybe a little information for those of you that are new to it, but then how you all can be uh, better serving uh, Foster the City uh, together in this fall. Sound good? Cool. So warm welcome. Another one for Ryan really quickly. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like Ryan said, my name is also Ryan. During uh, pre-service prayer, he referred to me as Ryan the Greater. That is not something that I'm going to step into unless the Lord has that for me. So <laughs> if Ryan the Greater is my new anointing, thank you for speaking life over me, brother. Um, yeah, I just real quick before we get into the, the message today, I want to just talk about Foster the City. I uh, personally have been a foster parent for about five years now. And I've had the absolute privilege of having nine kids uh, come in and out of my house during that time. And when my wife first suggested that we do foster care, I thought she was crazy. I actually thought she was like talking in abstractions, like Christians get really good at doing, so it doesn't mean anything for their life. And she was like, what do you think about foster care? She kind of like a little bait and switch there. I was like, yeah, I don't know much about it, but it seems awesome. Some of the people should be doing. She's like, no, what do you think about us doing foster? I was like, oh, no, terrible idea. Yeah, <laughs> just not a lot of alignment there philosophically with my beliefs. And so it took me a long time to warm up even to this idea. Like, it's so abstract. Like, is this my kid or is this not my kid? Is this adoption? Is this not adoption? Because the point of foster care is reconciliation. It's making families whole again who have been fractured by drugs and violence and unhealthy patterns and racism and so many factors that are against them. And so I was dragged into foster care. <laughs> A combination of Stacy dragging this arm and the Holy Spirit dragging this arm just led down the road. But it has been the single greatest thing I have done with my life. I've been thinking about the brevity of life a lot lately, and um, I want to make a difference. I have such a short amount of time here on this planet, and as I think through all of the things that I do in my life, this is one of the things that I know that I know that I know I'm doing it for the right reasons, and it's going to last. I'm going to make a lasting imprint in these kids' lives. There are families that are reconciled, that were once broken, and I got to play a piece of that story. Just think about that for a minute. Foster parents play a significant role in bringing families back together. And 42 times in the Old Testament, God said, don't forget about orphans and widows, orphans and widows. Those words are always together for a reason, but because behind every orphan, there's a vulnerable mother, and that vulnerable mother needs to be cared for and loved. And so, the Foster the City ministry is really just a ministry of faith. It's a ministry of saying, man, how amazing would it be if on our gatherings on Sunday morning, we got the privilege to love on children and youth in the foster care system. What, what if in this room we, ha we had kids with us, and as we sang songs, we got to speak the gospel over those kids' lives. We got to rewrite the messages that they have heard over time, that they don't have value and they don't matter. We as a community together get to affirm to these kids that they do matter and we can change the trajectory of their lives 
the church is fundamentally a surrogate family. I mean, there is no other place in the world that these kids should land more perfectly than in this community. And so over the next few months, the advocates here, which is uh, Kyle and his wife, Courtney, and then Ryan, sorry, Jeremy, um, not this Ryan. There are too many Ryans, yes. Ryan's on the brain. Um, they are the advocates here, and they're leading this ministry. And a huge uh, prayer of theirs is, is just that a foster family would step up from this church. And I know that seems just so scary and disorienting, and I was with you. But there are 30,000 children and youth in the foster care system in L.A. County. We are at the epicenter of the worst child welfare crisis in America history, and it's here, right here. And what's called the COVID bubble is about to pop, which means that there's going to be a huge influx of kids entering into care because at-home education and lack of extracurriculars meant that mandated reporters weren't seeing abuse. And it was happening in secret for the last two and a half years, and the secret is about to be out this fall. And actually, the number of foster parents is declining rapidly. And so what you have is you have the number of kids entering care about to explode and the number of foster families available for them hitting the ground. Already, social workers are spending the night in hotels with their kids. This is like a new thing. There's literally no place to take these kids. I mean, can you imagine being six, removed from your family and having nowhere to go, being in a hotel with a government worker, and they're doing the best they can, but they are not a family. They're not a good situation. And so we are really trusting and praying at Collective Church, that God would inspire, call, anoint some of you to put your hand up and say, you know what, let's open up our home, let's try this, let's take that step of faith. And then support friends are going to come around you, and there's a whole system for meals and child care and prayer. You will not do this alone. You will not do this alone. And then there's a bunch of other ways to get involved. So um, Kyle's back there, and there are next step cards. Please just fill out a next step card. That's your small act of faith. And then in about two months at Upside Down, there's an interest meeting. It's on the first Sunday of November, um, right after church. Uh, that's in partnership with another church uh, called The Commons that will be joining together to have that meeting. And that's really where you can hear more and get involved. And so I just invite you to fill out that card, take that next step of faith to see how you can get involved, and just join me in prayer. Join the advocates in prayer that someone from our church would put their hand up and you would have the privilege of being able to rewrite a child's story in L.A. County. Um, well, thank you, Ryan. So you guys heard next steps. We're going to hand it over to him to teach. As most of you know, we are making our way this fall through our teaching series, How to Read the Bible, Navigating the Library of Scripture. And so we've been seeking to understand what does it mean to be the people of Jesus, in so many ways that we focus on, and we often forget that part of being the people of Jesus means reading the Bible like Jesus did. And so we've been seeking over the past few weeks to do that, and so we're continuing today. Once again, out of our working definition of what the Bible is, the Bible is the library of ancient writings, both divine and human, that tell a unified story leading us to Jesus and forming us as his people. And so in the past few weeks, we've looked at divine and human. We've looked at the unified library and how it leads to Jesus. And today we're looking at that really important pronoun of us, that the Bible is, a, is communal literature, is what Ryan's going to be teaching on today. And so as we've been giving away uh, Christian Standard Bibles, the new translation that we're moving to every single week, um, I'm going to give this to some parents uh, during the, uh, at the end, at the closing. So stay through worship. You might get a free Bible out of it. 
With that being said, let me pray for Ryan, and then we'll get right into it. Sound good? All right. Father, thank you for Ryan. Thank you for, uh, God, his dedication to follow you wherever you lead. Uh, Father, we pray that you would develop something like that further within each of us. God, we pray that as he teaches today on the scriptures, as communal literature, that, that his teaching would warm our hearts not only to you or to your word, but to this experience of, of reading the Bible together as your people. So God, we pray that you would speak through him. God, would you give us ears to hear, hearts uh, warm to your word. And God, would you lead us uh, ultimately to the table where we'll meet with you in a time of response. Speak through him, we pray. Open our ears, Father. Amen. Let's give it up for Ryan. Let's just another round of applause. <laughs> a third one. Does this mean you're hearing from third, three Ryans this Sunday, or are you hearing from two Ryans? It's a little complicated. Well, anyway, I, I am so excited about this series. I think this is a brilliant idea. And uh, reading about your Bible is a significant part of what it means to be a Christian. And so to take uh, six or so weeks to think about that experience, I really pray that it yields fruit in your life and in your Bible reading and your community Bible reading for years to come. Um, now, I have been asked to crawl into the mind of Ryan Smith as he is crawled into the mind of Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey. And so the journey for me has been steep preparing for this message. And so if it is terrible, please don't blame Ryan, blame Ryan. That's what I'm going to say on the out front, okay? But I'm going to do my best to crawl into Ryan's brain as he crawls into Tim Mackey's brain. All right, if you're new here, that doesn't make any sense. Please just come back next week, please, okay? So this morning we are looking at that fifth element, and that is that the Bible was designed, created, architected to be read in a community. A little background on me. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, we were about as Christian as you can get in America. We were there every Sunday. My dad was on the board. He was the treasurer. My mom was the children's ministry director for a long stint. I, I was forced to stand during worship out of reverence for the Lord. I was forced to pay attention during sermons. Like that was my whole upbringing. I was deep inside the church. And that continued in high school. In high school, I went to youth group every Thursday. I still attended every Sunday. I was on the leadership team. I, I played drums on uh, the, mu the music team. And I actually did the math from sixth grade to when I graduated high school. I heard at least 500 sermons or 500 Bible messages in those six years, which is just a significant amount of encountering the Bible. But as I've reflected on it, I actually don't have a single memory of someone reading the Bible with me. So just think about that for a minute. 500 sermons. And I don't have a single memory of, of anyone in my family. We didn't do family devotions or the pastors or the leaders in my youth group or nobody. Nobody sat down with me to read the Bible. Now, I was uh, a dyslexic kid. I had dyslexia really bad. I had a processing disorder. And so... All growing up, I heard this message from the church, you need to read your Bible. You need to read your Bible. You need to have a quiet time. You need to read your Bible. And so when I would go to open up the Bible, I had a really, really hard time engaging with Scripture. And even now as an adult, and God has really healed me, and this is a story for a different day, but God literally healed my dyslexia as I started reading the Bible, which is just a beautiful real-life illustration of the power of the Word of God. But I've been reading for a long time now, and still, I just, it's really hard for me to read my Bible every day. I don't know if you guys uh, experience that, and in my pastoral, in my time as a pastor, I've just, 
I've sensed this kind of low-grade communal guilt about how we should be better at reading our Bible privately. I don't know if you feel that, but I've just actually had countless people over my seven years of being a pastor approach me with some form of this like low-grade sense that like I'm a bad Christian because I don't read my Bible every day. And um, as I think about that experience, I, I, I think of, I was asking the question like when, when did this switch in church history that the full and complete weight of reading the Bible was exclusively on the individual instead of no longer on the community. Because if we're not reading in community, and I know that the Bible's important for me, guess what? The full responsibility of knowing the scriptures rests solely on my shoulder. And I think, I think because we have put so much weight and so much conviction on private Bible reading, which is a good thing. Thank God for the printing press. Thank God for literacy. This is in no way a knock against private Bible reading at all. If you take that away from today, I have utterly and completely failed. So hear me. If one application was you read your Bible more privately today, yes and amen. But the thing that we have neglected as a culture is actually reading the Bible together. So I want you to, to picture this three-legged stool that's behind me. And this three-legged stool is the foundation of engaging scripture. And so one of those legs is Bible teaching. So that could be a sermon, that could be reading a commentary, that could be reading a book on the Bible. How do we engage the Bible? Well, we have someone teach us how to read the Bible and understand how to understand the Bible. The second leg of this third-legged stool is private reading, right? That's when I go to the Bible and I read. But this third leg, which is the dominant leg through most of church history, is almost completely missing. It's kind of like this next picture, is we have been trying to sit on a stool that has two legs. Now, the metaphor works here in this way, that when we have all three active, we have a firm foundation to rest on. And when we're missing one of the three legs, you kind of, you're always like balancing and it's up to you to find that perfect balance. And some of us really only have one of these legs and that's like the milkmaid stools. Have you seen those? I had this like awesome picture of this woman milking a cow and it's just like a stool with like one little peg. Have you guys seen those before? No, we live in LA. We don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, but what we need, what we're after this morning is really that third leg of this uh, firm foundation that God is inviting us into to find fresh life in our Bible reading and to really be rooted and grounded in Scripture. And that is that we learn to read the Bible uh, together as a community. So I want to just explore three different questions to kind of help us conceptualize and have a framework for what communal Bible reading actually looks like. So the first question is, how did we arrive at this almost exclusively private reading of scripture? Like how did we get here to where the dominant way that we engage the Bible is kind of alone by ourselves? And in true Ryan Smith fashion, I'm gonna start with a quote from Tim Mackey. He says this, uh, in modern Western traditions of Christian culture, the assumed ideal way to engage the Bible is by yourself in a quiet period, usually in the morning, on the couch with your cup of tea. I thought it was interesting he said tea. I mean, this guy's from Portland. Do they really drink tea in Portland? It's like the best coffee in the world, and he's drinking tea. Or your journal. It's a quiet time. That has not been the case through most of church history. 
The ability for individuals to have their own Bible is itself only a product of the last 500 years with the invention of the printing press. For the majority of church history, people heard their Bibles or saw their Bibles displayed graphically in their churches. Think stained glass windows. It's good for us to step back and say the idea of a quiet time and you and God and your Bible one-on-one is a product of your cultural setting. Now, we're going to get to the communal part, but I mean, this is like a seismic shift in thinking about scripture. The idea of a quiet time is the product of our cultural setting. It's not necessarily the product of history or what the Bible encourages us to do. It's the product of our cultural setting. So where did we get this idea of a quiet time? Well, briefly, uh, the, the, the idea of quiet time is really birthed out of the time of morning prayer. Now, morning prayer has a history that dates all the way back to David in Psalm 5, when he talks about petitioning the Lord in the morning and watching to see how God would respond. And Jesus himself, in Luke 5.16, the text says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. And so this idea kind of formalized in the 1800s into this idea of what's called the morning watch. Have you guys ever heard of the morning watch before? It was popularized by um, Andrew Murray, who wrote a book by the same title. And so first in London and then across the United States, this practice, the spiritual discipline of prayer and meditation called morning watch uh, began to be standardized in the church. But then in the 1900s, this idea slowly started to be replaced, the idea of praying um, and connecting with God in the morning slowly began to be replaced with the idea of reading your Bible privately. And so by 1945, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship had released a little pamphlet called Quiet Time. And that pamphlet was read by millions and millions of people and essentially changed the face of how people primarily engage with Scripture from in community to in private. Now, this quiet time paradigm was absolutely inflamed by what I call the personal savior product project of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So Mark Sayers has a really helpful little book called Disappearing Church. And in that book, he talks about the personal savior movement. See, what had happened during the sexual revolution of the 60s is that culture threw off kind of all oppressive structures and authoritative systems and change the definition of how we find our identity. So we used to find our identity in our community by the trades of your father or by the type of neighborhood you grew up in or things like that. And something happened that was new in human history in the 60s where we no longer found our identity in our community, but we found our identity inside of ourselves. And so everyone started to look inward to find out who they were and to define for themselves who they were instead of defining who they were by their communal context. And so how did the church respond? Well, the church responded by no longer positioning Jesus as the chief shepherd of the church, but as the personal savior of the world. There was a strategic thinking that Mark Sayers unpacks. How do we get people back to church? How do we get people engaged in the Bible again. Well, let's follow the world's paradigm and make it all about yourself. I love what Joe Hellerman says about this. He says, you may be surprised to discover that the expression personal savior occurs nowhere in the pages of scripture. Our uniquely individualistic approach towards life and relationships so characterized of American society subtly yet certainly sets us up for failure. 
So if Jesus is my personal savior, the Bible becomes my personal love letter. It's a book written to me, about me, and for me. And what this means is before you even pick up your Bible to read, you are at a disadvantage about how the Bible was originally designed to be communicated. You come to the Bible looking for eyes and me's, but the Bible was written to be read in us and we's. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's like, call up Dr. Seuss Publishers, man. We got something good over here. And this comes out in profound ways, but one of the main ways is as you're reading through the letters of Paul, we don't have, and I think you guys have talked about this before, we don't have in English that plural you, you know? So it's, it's the y'all translation uh, that even Lorenzo used when he was up here, that Paul is talking to y'all. Almost 100% of the time, he's talking to y'all. And so when we read the Bible, we see the word you, and we, we think me, individual me. And this has led to some really strange application of Scripture in various places that we don't have time to go into. But there are um, countless places in the Scripture where it's talking about the community. And we are so conditioned that Jesus is my personal Savior. And this book is my personal love letter written to me that we actually read our community out of our Bibles. And... um, I think this has resulted in countless Christians who just carry this low-grade guilt about irregularity in Bible reading because the weight of engaging the text is solely and completely on them. And research bears this out. Only one-third of regular churchgoers, so not just people who claim to be Christians, but of regular churchgoers actually engage their Bibles regularly. So this, this personalized project of it's up to me to know my Bible, it's up to me to read my Bible in private, has lost two-thirds of regular-going Christians. They are missing a significant moment to connect. And this is to say nothing of the thousands and thousands of Christians who have read their Bible on their own and deconstructed their faith. Not because the Bible led them astray, but because their misunderstanding of the Bible had pushed them away from God. And if they would have read that text in a safe, interpretive community, the outcome would have been radically, radically different. And so I think it's time to admit the exclusively private Bible-reading paradigm of the last century has failed. And we need to get back to the text to find fresh life in our Bible reading again and discover how the Scripture was intended to be read. So that's my second question. How was Scripture designed to be read? So one of the hidden treasures of the Bible is that the Bible tells you how the Bible was designed to be read. Isn't that kind? I think that's kind. Because we could sit here and debate about it a lot, or we could just read the Bible and see how the Bible tells us the Bible was intended to be read. Um, I love the Bible Project summary here. It says this, The Bible was designed to be read and studied within a community that that is learning to live by its story. So two parts to this definition really is the Bible was designed to be read and studied within a community. That the biblical authors from Moses to Paul and everyone in between, they actually wrote the sacred scriptures so that they would be read and engaged in practice in a formational community. They, nobody, nobody writing scripture had in mind a quiet time or that there would be individuals who had to carry the weight by themselves of Bible reading. And the second portion of this helpful definition is that they're learning to live by its story, that we have a shared identity, 
that we are those who have been redeemed by God, purified by grace, and commissioned as priests into the world. That's our shared communal identity, and so we live by that story. Now, there's a lot of places we could go to unpack this. Luke chapter 4 comes to mind. Luke chapter 4 is significant because Jesus actually inaugurates his ministry by publicly reading Isaiah 61. Like, it's his epic mic drop, kick open the doors, I'm on the scene moment. And he does it in the synagogue while he's reading Isaiah 61 about how he's ushering in the year of the Lord's favor. And he basically says, I'm fulfilling this in your midst. It's amazing. Go read it. There's also all these comments of Paul about his letters that, hey, when you get this letter, read it aloud to the church. And even at places he says, hey, the church down the street, they have a letter too. So why don't you guys swap letters and share letters and then you guys can all be um, uh, educated and, and learn about what God's doing. But what I want to do is I want to go back to the origins of the Bible being written. And so the first mention of the Bible being written is in Exodus 17. Now, in Exodus 17, Israel has just been liberated from, I think, 430 years of oppression and slavery. And God did that, I mean, in style, didn't he? Like these 10 plagues that absolutely obliterated Egypt and their gods, and then parting the Red Sea. And so... As Israel is journeying to Mount Sinai, while they enter into an official love relationship with Yahweh, they come against a problem. They're attacked by this army. And so this army comes out, and they're looking at this band of, of slaves traveling through the wilderness with all this gold and food and stuff, and they're like, jackpot, let's take them out. And so they're fighting against them, and so Moses goes up on a rock to pray for the people in a typical Hebrew uh, a posture with hands lifted. And so Moses is lifting his hands, praying that Joshua and his men would advance. And every time he prays, Joshua and his men advance. But he's an old man. He's like 81 or something at this point. And so he gets tired. I mean, have you tried to lift your hands for a long time? I mean, I'd get tired after five minutes. And so he puts his hands down, you know, takes a break from praying. And then to his horror, he realizes Israel starts losing. He's like, no, 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 no. And he starts praying again. And then Israel advances, and then he gets tired again, and then Israel starts losing. I don't know how long it took for him to discern this pattern, but God had anointed his prayer that every time he prayed, Israel prospered. And so uh, two other people come along, Aaron and her, they have him sit on a rock, and they basically hold his hands up, and they partner with him in prayer so that Israel can obtain the victory. And this is the first moment that God starts to record Scripture. Listen to what the Bible says. Then the Lord says to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua that I will completely blot out the memory of Elimelech under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. So this is the first moment that God says to Moses, hey, write this down. Write this down. And it's this moment where the community was saved by God. That as they journeyed towards their freedom, that the Lord had helped them. The Lord had helped them gain this victory. And so they were to keep it in the communal memory so that they would never forget about this moment. The second time that the Bible talks about its intention is a few chapters later, and it's after Israel is gathered with God at Mount Sinai, and they're 
arranging the terms of the covenant. God's telling Israel how much he loves them and giving them a pathway to life, the Ten Commandments. If you follow these, if, if you step into your identity as kingdom priests, those who have been radically saved by God, that are going to go and serve and bless the world, I will bless you and I will never leave you. And as they hear the terms of this, this almost like this marriage ceremony, this commitment, they respond in faith saying, God, we will do these things because you have cared for us. And it says this, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And the people answered in one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. There's the first mention of the Bible being recorded. And then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with the 12 pillars of the 12 tribes of Israel, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 4. So already we're starting to see the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture was to keep it in the communal mind about how God was going to be Israel's God and how they were going to be his people. These memories, these significant moments where God had delivered them and called them to be set apart for himself. And the last one where this is explicitly mentioned is later on in Deuteronomy 31. It says this, Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read aloud this teaching or Torah in front of all Israel and its hearing. So every seven years, the Feast of Booths happened every year, but on the seventh year that they practiced this feast to remind them of the Exodus, they were to gather everyone and they were going to read these things, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, um, presumably, to the whole assembly. And assemble the people, men and women, children and the immigrant who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you are to cross over the Jordan to possess. So every seven years, they are to essentially rehearse that moment on Mount Sinai where God officially made them his people, where he redeemed them and he saved them. Now, some of you are going, wow, once every seven years, like that's a that's a pretty big gap, right? So do we only need to read through the Bible once every seven years? Uh, just a quick comment on this, in that this was a oral culture with an oral tradition. And so in Deuteronomy 6 and chapter 8, it already said, no, you rehearse these things every day. When you wake up, uh, when you have breakfast, when you leave the house, when you come back from the house, and you're sleeping and you're going, they were rehearsing this story all the time because of their oral tradition. So they were gossiping about the goodness of God constantly with their children and in their communities. But it, to read the official record, to remind them of those stories, once every seven years, everyone was to gather and to be reminded about what God had done for them. In other words, the Bible was designed to be read and studied within a community that it's learning to live by its story. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, just kind of pulls out some of these elements of what it means to live by his story. He says this, We become a part of once took place for our salvation. Forgetting and losing ourselves, we too pass through the Red Sea. 
through the desert across the Jordan into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief through punishment and repentance, experience again God's help and faithfulness. And this is not a mere daydream, but holy, godly reality. We are torn out of our own existence. I love that line. And sit down in the midst of the holy history of God on earth. There, God dealt with us. And there, he still deals with us. Our needs and our sins in judgment and in grace. Do you know how to see yourself in this story? Can you think in your own family's story? Or in the story of this church, can you see how God has been kind to you? Can you see how he's been gracious to you? Can you see how when you were tired, when you were weary, when it felt like life was coming at you too fast, you lifted up your hands to God and he miraculously came and he saved you? Can you think back to your own baptism experience where you passed through the waters of the Red Sea by faith and God bound you into this family. See, this is our story. That is why it's so important to read the Bible as communal literature, because it's our story. We were the ones rescued, not from Pharaoh, but from sin and from death to the oppression where we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We had no life. We were dominated by a demonic master that spoke lies to us 24-7, and Christ came victorious And he saved us from those dark places. And he led us out into light, not as an individual, but as a family. I I think back even recently, my wife and I got to care for little Leilani, who was our foster daughter, for 14 months. And uh, God did an amazing work in Leilani's mom. And she made this significant recovery. And it was just really Uh, incredible to be uh, a part of her story. And so she got to go home and and live with her mom again. But um, as you can imagine, when you love someone that much and you give that much of your life emotionally, when these kids leave our home, it is quite difficult. And it just so happened that at my home church, I was scheduled to preach on foster care and adoption the Sunday, and she had left on Saturday. And so I showed up to church just like I don't even know the appropriate word, but like a dumpster fire of emotions. That might be not the best way to say it, but I was just absolutely torn apart. And so during pre-service prayer, the person who was leading pre-service prayer just turned to me and said, hey, Ryan, how can we be praying for you? Like I just broke. And I was so thankful I was at my home church where I just felt the safety to express my emotions. And I just wept, like I audibly wept in front of about 25 people. And they didn't even hesitate. It was, it was like a movie or something. I'm in the middle of this circle, and this circle just enclosed on me. And nobody even said, let's pray for Ryan. They just bursted out in unison, praying out loud for me. And somebody on the prayer team actually picked me up and stood me on my feet And they began praying for me. And then when it quieted down, someone read Psalm 23 over me as I was experiencing this dark place. And it was just this amazing moment where my community came around me, living scripture, reminding me of God's faithfulness, reading the Bible over me, this communal experience of God's word. 
And I was able to receive life from them and preach a message that really was powerful for a handful of people in our church. And that there's moments like that where I, that wasn't just my story. I was in a community. I'm in the community of faith. This is our story. People resonated with me because they too were in those places before in their own faith. They too needed a brother or a sister to pick them up and to lift up their arms and to pray for them and to rehearse the story of scripture together. I think of Christine who was diagnosed with breast cancer about a year and a half ago at our church, and it's just been a brutal, brutal cancer journey for her. And a few weeks ago, uh, she had finished all of her treatments, and she was in full remission, and everything was looking good, and like our whole church just celebrated. Our whole church celebrated. We cheered and we shouted for her when we heard this news, because she didn't go through that alone. So many of us dropped off a meal for her. So many of us took out her, her junior high and teenage kids and checked in with them. So many of us took her husband out for a beer just to hear how he was doing. It was a communal story because we are a part of God's narrative of restoration and victory. And we live that story together in community. And when we practice the biblical story like this, we are fulfilling scripture's intent. That is the reason scripture was written down for us, is so that you and I would love one another and we would enter the biblical story together and we too would see God's deliverance. We too would see God's protection. We too would see God's faithfulness. We too would see God's freedom from the things that we struggle with. This is our shared story and the Bible was written down so we would experience that life and that life abundant. So lastly, how do we recover a communal reading of Scripture? Well, really practically, the first thing is to read aloud with one or two others to help carry the responsibility of reading. I wish when I was in high school, one of my leaders or one of my parents would tell me, hey, Ryan, you don't have to read the Bible alone. Like, that would have been an absolute game changer for me. Just that freedom, that my engagement with scripture doesn't solely rest on my discipline rhythm, my quiet time in the morning, that there are other communal ways to participate in the story of God. When my wife and I were engaged, um, we had this hashtag, no more empty chairs. And every, anytime we were alone, like at a restaurant or you know, waiting for something, we'd like take a picture of the empty chair next to us and send it to the other person, hashtag no more empty chairs because we wanted to be together. So cheesy, I know. <laughs> but I want to start a new hashtag, no more lonely readers, okay? Hashtag no more lonely readers. For those of us who really struggle with getting in a rhythm where we're drawing life from the sacred scriptures that we would realize, yes, that's still a leg on the stool, private reading or private listening to the Bible on an audio Bible. But this third leg will really help us step into the biblical story. And so in this first way, there's no discussion. You don't need to prepare a Bible study. You don't need to talk about it. You literally just get together with one or two other people and you read the Bible. Maybe you allow kind of 15 seconds of silence afterwards, but that's it. And so you can do this with a spouse or with roommates. With roommates, you, you find a time of the week that you're both home and just say, hey, can we get together once or twice a month and can we read through a, a, a psalm or a chapter of the Gospels? And that's it. No one has to prepare anything. You literally just read the text together out loud 
and you're just rehearsing the biblical story together. If you have coworkers, this is an amazing evangelistic tool. I just heard about a ministry in New York City where there's a man, and during lunchtime in his office, as people are coming back to the office, he is just inviting them on Fridays, and he plays like a kind of dramatized audio Bible reading of the Gospels, and he's just inviting his coworkers literally to come listen to the Bible for 15 minutes, and that's it. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just plays it. Thanks, everyone, for coming, talking, and it's just how they're spending their lunch. Like, there are so many ways for us just to participate in this story. If, if you have kids, you know, starting a rhythm of reading to your kids young, I would, uh, meals and bedtime, including in the bedtime routine, is a great way to do this. And there are so many tools available to help our kids engage scripture. I mean, you can really scale this. So there's, there's one Bible called the Rhyme Bible. That's really, really good. It's really simple for little kids. And then you can kind of work up to the Jesus Storybook Bible that has more words. And then until you have a, a children's translation like the one uh, Ryan is going to give to someone today. So the first way we can do this is just no prep work. Uh, no Bible study. You just literally get together with one or two people, a spouse, a child, a coworker, a roommate, and you just read through the biblical text together. The second one is to read aloud with discussion in a small group to help understand the Bible. So this one is, is a little bit different in the sense that maybe the group's a little bit larger, maybe it's a little bit more formal, but there is a discussion afterwards. And you're kind of talking about the text and working it through in your life. And this is really, really important because of the complexity of meaning. And essentially, when you and I come to a passage of Scripture, I can only see partially, like, the full beauty and meaning of that text. And so when I sit down and I read with other people and I hear their thoughts on it, I am learning how to be a better reader of Scripture. And we are sharpening one another as we read and talk about the Bible together. I love how uh, Professor Janine Brown, I love how she puts it in her uh, book, Scripture is Communication. She says this, The complexity of meaning implies that readers will struggle to get it right and will fall short of getting it fully. This is because readers approach the text from a particular subjective advantage point. We will only partially access meaning. We see in a uh, mere dimly, as Paul would put it. This condition provides great encouragement to read carefully and to read within the community. For if my access to meaning is partial at best, I love this line, then I need you to read with me. That is such a good line. I need you to read with me. I can learn from what others see when reading scripture. Reading with and across communities intentionally and humbly is one way of expanding our limited horizons. Hearing from those whom we do not initially agree enables us to perceive better our own interpretive blind spots. This is one conviction I hope that you really grow to develop, that I need you to read with me. If I'm going to know Christ more fully, if I'm going to live out the gospel more completely, I need you. I need you to read scripture with me. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, someone who's reading the Bible by himself, and he doesn't understand what's going on. He's confused, and the Holy Spirit brings a friend, Philip, who helps him interpret and understand the text more fully. It was so cool. Yesterday, I had um, uh, a couple things going on, and my friend called me, and I needed to call him back. And I was like, hey, what's going on, Joey? He's like, hey. He's like, I just read through Galatians. I was like, that's awesome. 
Like, he's like, I just wanted to tell you. I was like, Joey, that's awesome. I'm so proud of you. And he's like, what does it mean to sow in the spirit? And I was like, how much time do you have? You know, let's read it together. And so he called me just to say that he had read through the whole book of Galatians on his Saturday. And then he just asked me a question. I didn't have all the answers at all. I had to reread it. We had, I had no idea where that was in the, in the book of uh, in the book of Galatians. And so we reread chapter six and we talked about it together. It was a 15-minute phone call. But I was like, how cool that that happened the day before I was teaching on communal reading of scripture. But those little moments just break the paradigm that I need to access meaning all by myself. It's all up to me. It's up to me to have, have Bible reading. No, it's up to us to read the Bible. It's up to us to apply and live out the story of God. Um, and lastly, uh, we share stories of how reading together has positively impacted us. So like Joey did yesterday, if, if, you, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, like text your friend. Just say, hey, I just read through the Sermon on the Mount. Man, I'm so encouraged or challenged or, or whatever it may be. And the more we do this, the more we gossip about the biblical text, the more we talk about it, the more we read it together, the more we share stories of how God breaks through as we read it, um, we will rewrite this paradigm that we have and really increase that third dimension of communal reading. I want to just share two quick stories of the power of reading together before we close. The first one was uh, when I was a youth pastor, I had a student who asked if we could read the Bible together. Or she asked if I would disciple her. And I said, how about we read the Bible together? And she said, sure. So we met up at a coffee shop. And I was like, what book do you want to read through? And she was like, Romans. I was like, dang, you're hardcore. All right, let's go to Romans. And so the first time we read through it, we just, we just took 17 verses and we read through Romans. And we get to the end of it and we talk about it. And I was like, let's just spend some time praying. And she goes, okay. So I pray and then she goes to pray. And she prayed, God, I'm so desperate to hear from you. Would you please, I just want to hear from you. That night, we had a worship night at our church. And as we were worshiping, she was completely filled with the Spirit. She just broke in worship. I mean, she had been really hard to worship for about three years. And that night, she just broke, just weeping, encountering the love of God. And she got this prophetic word from someone that she needed to go on this gap year to serve with Mike Filavacci, who's someone who ministers in the U.K., and it was just so cool. Like, I got to be a part of that story. Like, it, that prayer in that moment was preceded and set up because we were reading the Bible together. Just this simple reading and prayer afterwards. And that very night, God answered her prayer that she prayed as we read through the first part of Romans together. The last story is just really dear to me. Um, as I've been reading through the Bible with my daughter, Nora Grace, who's just turned five. She was four at the time. Um, we get to this story called The Rich Fool. And it's about this man uh, from the Gospel of Luke who has all this money and he doesn't share it and he dies and everyone pillages his stuff. I was like, dang, this isn't a kid's Bible? This is awesome. <laughs> and Nora just literally, I just, I watched her as we read it together. She just sat there and she's like, I don't want to be like that man. She's four years old. And she runs in a room and she empties her piggy bank that she's been saving to buy this special toy just change all over the floor. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, we need to give this money away. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like blown away. It's like, no, right now, we need to go give this money away. So I was like, okay. So I Googled nonprofits in my area, 
And there was this nonprofit called Foster Love that did foster care stuff right up the street. And I was like, let's go. And so she grabbed her six bucks and we went there and we opened the door and she walked up to the receptionist and she said, I'd like to donate this, please. My four-year-old daughter, it was so beautiful. And it happened because we were reading the Bible together. We were reading the Bible community and we just watched as God broke in and met with us. So my, my prayer for you, especially those of you who feel disconnected from the Bible, is that we would learn to read it together. That we really would, in small and big ways, learn how to enter the story that God has written for us, our story, and we would watch as God breaks in in profound ways uh, to help us engage with God's word. Over to you.